It's good to see your faces, even though they're covered with masks. It's good to be together. We're thankful. We're thankful that we can gather, even in these difficult times. Powerful leaders and oppressive governments have opposed God and His Word and His church since the beginning of the church. The church, in the face of these governments and these leaders, seems powerless against such immense power, but God's Word and God's church will always win in the end because God is with us. Romania was once ruled by an oppressive communist government bent on destroying the church. The authorities threatened to kill a certain Christian pastor named Joseph Tawn. He responded, sir, your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Our passage this evening describes a wicked ruler seeking to behead the church by literally beheading its leaders. There's even the first death of an apostle. But there's rescue for another and ultimately growth and flourishing for the church. And what I want us to see in this chapter 12 of the book of Acts this evening is how the Lord protects and advances His gospel despite violent opposition. The Lord protects and even advances His gospel despite violent opposition. If you're taking notes, might make it easier for you to follow along. We have three points in the sermon this evening. A vicious attack, the Lord's rescue, and a final verdict. A vicious attack, the Lord's rescue, and a final verdict. Now, if you're not already there, you don't have your bulletin open or, or your Bible open, I'd encourage you to open those up so that you can follow along with the story. I know Carson read it to us. We're going to go all the way to verse 24. We'll pick up verse 25 when we launch back into the rest of Acts three weeks from now. Now, as chapter 12 opens, it's been about 10 years since the day of Pentecost And the Lord has just now opened Peter's and the church's eyes to the fact that the gospel is for Gentiles too. The conversion of the Roman centurion named Cornelius was a pivotal moment in the life of the church that happened in chapter 10. The Jerusalem church's affirmation then of Peter's testimony about that experience, that amazing thing that God had done with Peter and Cornelius, and their understanding that God was granting repentance and forgiveness of sins to Gentiles also paved the way for the founding and the growth of the church's first mixed Gentile and Jewish church in the city of Antioch. All these breakthroughs for the church happen in the context of relative peace. If we were to turn back and look at Acts chapter 9, verse 31, it said there, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And so we then saw what happened in chapters 10 and 11, and now we've come to 12. 
There was peace, but history demonstrates that the peace doesn't usually last forever. Periods of violence against God's people and wicked opposition against the church, they often shatter the peace and test the church. Our passage vividly illustrates how God can ultimately bring victory when defeat looks certain. John Stott writes about this chapter. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing, but it closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the Word of God triumphing. That all happens in one chapter. No matter how desperate the situation seems to be, the Lord sovereignly protects and sometimes even advances the church during difficult seasons of opposition. Within the first five verses of chapter 12, the church is plunged into a season of violence and persecution. We see what we can find there to be a vicious attack. That's the first point this evening, a vicious attack. King Herod, who is featured in our passage, is actually named King Herod Agrippa I, who ruled in Palestine at this time, and he's known for oppressing minorities and his unprovoked brutality. What a reputation. He was the grandson of Herod the Great, who had ordered all the baby boys of Bethlehem murdered when Jesus was born. He is also the nephew of Herod Antipas, who was involved in the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, as you can see just by that description, this line of kings was brutal and particularly wicked. Within two verses, Herod's described as killing, likely beheading, the apostle James, brother of John. This was the disciple who, along with his brother, asked Jesus to sit at his right and his left when he sat on his throne. And Jesus had asked these two disciples if they could drink the cup that he was going to drink and be baptized with the baptism that he was going to be baptized with. And they eagerly said, yes, yes, we will, we can. And yet, of course, it was the cup of wrath and suffering, not a cup of privilege and honor that Jesus was speaking about. And now an important leader in the church is gone, an apostle, killed. He's the only apostle whose martyrdom is recorded in the Bible. It must have been a heavy blow to the church to have had James killed. Luke doesn't offer us any other details or commentary on James's death. It's kind of amazing. Certainly there would have been mourning, there would have been great grief at his loss, but the way Luke describes it in such brief terms seems to communicate trust, trust that God is working His sovereign plan for His people and His church no matter what kind of terrible things confront them. How many times have terrible things happened, death and loss, and we've at least thought to ourselves, what is God doing? Or why isn't God doing something? Or even perhaps, if I were God, I would not do it this way. But we aren't God, are we? And we know God is working all things together for the good of those who love Him, just as Paul wrote in chapter 8 of Romans. 
On this side of heaven, we often don't know the reasons why God's plan involves painful loss and suffering for His people. We don't have to understand how God is using something for our good in order for us to trust Him. We simply trust. Who is wiser than the Lord who made the heavens and the earth? Certainly not us. And so we trust Him. A line in one old hymn reminds us, deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Oh, brothers and sisters, remember the cross of Christ when hard times come. If God brought the ultimate good out of the most wicked evil, if God brought salvation for anyone who believes out of the murder of the perfect and righteous Son of God, then we can always trust God's sovereign plans in the face of horrific death and loss. James's execution pleased the Jews, and Herod wanted to gain more favor with them, and so he put Peter in prison as well. He waited until after the Passover when he planned to bring him out to the people and presumably to execute him in the same way. Peter already had a prison record, of course, by now. In chapter 4, verse 3, he was arrested, and then again in chapter 5, verse 17. And yet, in both instances, he was released either by the authorities or by God's miraculous intervention. But with James having been executed, it looks rather hopeless for Peter this time. What can the church do in situations like this? They can pray. Prayer is the greatest power that the powerless have. Two things that we can notice from the brief description of their prayer in verse 5. Look with me there at verse 5 again. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made to God by the church. First of all, they prayed earnestly. Anything that's earnest is intense, it's deep and with conviction. The other place in the New Testament where this word is used is when Peter urges Christians to, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, with intensity and with deep conviction. Now, it's not every week that we are praying for one another, one of our members or a church leader who's about to be executed, but the Lord takes notice of how intensely and deeply we pray. I'm reminded of the widow who comes knocking at the judge's door. She's persistent. She keeps banging on the door. There's intensity and conviction there in that parable that Jesus taught about prayer. And so we should pray to God and pray earnestly. C.H. Spurgeon said about the church's prayers, some mercies are not given except in answer to persistent prayer. There are blessings which, like ripe fruit, drop into your hand the moment you touch the bough. But there are others which require you to shake the tree again and again until you make it rock with the violence of your exercise, and then only will the fruit fall down. When we pray together at a prayer meeting, even over Zoom, we should fight against the feeling that we're simply spectators as we hear someone else lead us in prayer. We want to lean into those prayers. When we pray for the lost to be saved, we must pray as if their lives depended on, on it, because they do. 
The second thing that we can see just from this verse is that they prayed together. They prayed corporately. They prayed as a church. We'll see later in the passage that they seemed to be gathered together to pray at various homes of church members. Corporate prayer is like the great engine room in a nuclear-powered battleship. It's the powerhouse of the church to pray together. To disbelieve this is to disbelieve God and His promises. And it's to put ultimately our trust in other things which are not as trustworthy as the Lord. It's to ignore a large part of Jesus' teaching about what should characterize the life of Christians in the church. Why do we not pray earnestly and often think of corporate prayer as optional? I fear that we're too dependent on ourselves. We're so used to trying to solve our own problems that we never use the means of power that Christ has given us. The freedom to approach the throne room, the throne of the living God and make requests of Him, the one who loves us and wants to hear from us and has asked us to come and ask Him. I confess that as we faced the demands of the Dubai government to collect personal information for for the government over the past several weeks, I prayed. We prayed multiple times. But looking back on it, as I read this passage over the last several days, I fear that even I trusted more in the connections that I might have with people in government rather than the covenantal privileges that I have with the King of Kings in prayer. And for that, I repent. Let's imitate the church as it prayed for Peter. Make corporate prayer a priority. Don't just get through it. Lean into it with earnestness. Now, the situation that Peter and the church faced looks desperate as verse 5 ends. Peter's in prison, and all the church can do is pray. But the Lord often works most mightily and miraculously when the situation seems impossible. And so, in verses 6 through 17, they describe the Lord's rescue, the Lord's rescue. In these verses, Luke emphasizes the sovereign actions of the Lord and how helpless and unaware Peter and the church were as it was happening. Herod was going to bring Peter out for trial and likely execute him the very next day. That night, Peter was bound with two chains… His cell was guarded by two separate sentries, and he's got a soldier inside the cell on either side of him. You would have thought that Peter was a threatening warrior rather than a preacher of the gospel based on how heavily guarded he was. Of course, maybe they remembered what happened back in chapter 5. Now, it's the night of his execution, and yet Peter is asleep. What incredible trust in the Lord this shows. When we feel threatened and vulnerable, when we fear the worst, more than ever, that's when we have to consciously entrust ourselves to the Lord who loves us. I think every one of us know that when there's something looming in front of us, perhaps even the next day, how difficult it is to sleep. We toss and turn, we worry. But here Peter is sleeping. 
during those kinds of times, the Lord is the only one where we can find secure rest. How much better sleep we'd all get if we kept the words of Paul in Philippians 4, 6 through 7, close to our hearts and minds. He says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Lord was indeed close at hand for Peter. And the miracles simply pile up as we continue to read through this account. The angel appears in the cell, and a bright light shines, lights up the cell. His chains fall off. The guards to his left and his right are presumably in some kind of miraculously induced sleep. The door to the cell must have miraculously opened because they pass through it and then pass the two sentries outside the cell without them knowing another miracle. And to top it all off, when they get to the iron gate leading into the city, it too miraculously opens. Miracle after miracle after miracle. And all along, Peter is helpless and unsure of whether this is a vision or whether it's reality. The angel has to give him step-by-step instructions to get him up quickly, to get him dressed, and to have him follow him out the door. And all along, Peter is helpless, and he's unsure of whether what is happening is real. When the angel disappears, he finally, at that moment, realizes that he's actually been rescued. The following scene at the house of Mary is one of the most comical passages that we'd actually read about in the Bible. Again, Luke is emphasizing how helpless and, in fact, lacking in faith, we might say, that the church is. The servant girl who recognizes Peter's voice at the gate leaves him outside and rushes back in to tell the prayer meeting that it's Peter. She's even named. We know her as Rhoda. Boy, I bet she had stories to tell later on in life. And when she goes back in to tell them, they don't believe her. But eventually, Peter's let in, of course. And as they sit there in shock, Peter tells them what is clear throughout this entire account of verses 6 through 17. Verse 17, look at that with me once again. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. It was the Lord. The Lord had rescued him. He gives them instructions then to give a report to James and to the brothers, and then he leaves to find what was probably a place that the authorities wouldn't have known about nearly as much as Mary's house where the prayer meeting had been happening. Isn't it striking how clueless Peter is in the midst of this rescue? Doesn't it strike you as interesting how surprised the church is at Peter's arrival there at their gate and in their home? They were praying, but it's pretty clear that they didn't expect that the kind of answer from the Lord. Isn't that an encouragement to you and I to know that the Lord knows best how to answer our prayers? 
When we pray, we don't have to know how the Lord might work a miracle or how He might solve a problem. Yes, we can pray through those different things, but it's simply enough to plead with the Lord for a solution. The Lord can work it out. And then you don't know how the Lord might resolve something when we pray like that. When we don't know that, we we simply pray. Tell Him, you don't know how He could do it, but Lord, we need an answer. And when the Lord answers, whether it's yes or whether it's no, we must trust Him. There's no reason to think that the church hadn't prayed for James's release as well, and yet he was executed. The Lord's answer on that prior occasion was no. The Lord has numbered the days of our lives, and nothing on this earth can prevent His plan for us from being fulfilled. Even the most desperate circumstances can't stop the Lord's plan for us from coming to pass. But when He calls us home, when that day arrives for each one of us, we go. We go to the Lord. James was called home to the Lord. But God's plan for Peter included more ministry. For every record of a miraculous rescue in Scripture, there are stories of God's people being persecuted and even martyred. And so we pray and we trust the Lord no matter what happens. Verses 18 through 24 then end chapter 12 by describing a final verdict. We see there a final verdict. The verdict is both a verdict delivered by God for Herod and for the Lord's Word and His church as well. First Herod, when morning came and they discovered Peter escaped, Herod searched for him, examined the soldiers in charge, and put them to death. Roman law dictated that if a prisoner of, that was being guarded by a soldier escaped, then the soldier was to receive the punishment which the prisoner was going to receive. There's little doubt then that Herod had intended to put Peter to death. And after doling out a brutal verdict for Peter's guards, Herod went to Caesarea on the coast. And it's there that his verdict is delivered as well. Luke sets up the situation for us. Look back at verses 20 and 21 with me. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. The people of Tyre and Sidon, they're desperate for food from Herod's territory, and so they go to plead with him. I don't think it's an accident that Luke describes the day of Herod's speech as an appointed day. The dramatic rescue of Peter on the eve of the day that Herod had appointed for Peter's execution, but now it's Herod's appointed day, a day appointed by God. As Herod gave his speech, the people wanted to flatter him and gain his favor, and so they shouted, the voice of a God, the voice of a God and not of a man. 
Look at verse 23 with me. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. The Lord's verdict for Herod was death, instant death. In his pride, Herod was stealing glory that belonged to the Lord, and the Lord struck him down in that moment. Herod's verdict of death is the verdict that everyone, in fact, will eventually receive who opposes the Lord and His Word and His church. This is the verdict that everyone will receive that doesn't receive the Lord Jesus as Savior and King. The good news message of Jesus makes this bad news that Herod receives clear first. All have rebelled in pride against the Lord. And though He created us in love, we set ourselves up as kings and queens. Instinctively, we all seek glory for ourselves by acting as if we're the Lord of our own lives. The verdict that hangs over every head is guilty. Guilty of being glory thieves. Eternal death is the sentence. And that is the darkest and most horrifying news that anyone could hear, and it is true. But God has made a way of escape for us. He's performed the greatest miracle of all time. He sent His Son Jesus into the world to take the punishment that we deserved, and He received it on that appointed judgment day, the day when He went to the cross and died. And now anyone who repents of their rebellion against God and trusts in His Son, Jesus escapes from judgment and enters into an eternal life of love and acceptance from God and with God. Christ secures our pardon. If you're not a Christian, if you've not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, oh, I beg of you to consider the desperate situation that you're in. Your appointed day is coming for you. Today, tomorrow, years from now, you don't know. None of us know. But that day is coming. And unless you turn to Christ, the verdict will remain unchanged, guilty with a sentence of death. If you have any sense that what I'm telling you is true, oh, friend, it's likely that someone is praying for you just as the church was praying for Peter's escape. Turn to Christ now. Put your trust and faith in Him. Leave behind your life of living for yourself. Live for Christ. Immediate judgment was the verdict for Herod. But victory was the verdict for God's Word and His church. Look at verse 24, the last verse in our passage. But the Word of God increased and multiplied. What an incredible reversal this chapter describes. The chapter began with death for the Apostle James and dominance for Herod. Peter's execution was imminent, but God's Word and His church were victorious in the end. 
God's Word is unstoppable. Unstoppable. Death can't even stop God's church because He's promised us resurrection. In just a few moments, we're going to witness two people being baptized. Baptism is a picture of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. When we repent and believe in Christ, we die with Him in His death, and that's illustrated by the person going underneath the water. But Christ gives us new hearts made alive by His power so that we can live for Him, and He promises us resurrection after death. That's illustrated when the person comes back up out of the water. Death with Christ, resurrection with Christ. Victory and resurrection to eternal life is our guarantee. No matter what happens to us as leaders and governments rage against God's Word and His people, that should give us the greatest confidence to live zealously for Christ and His gospel, no matter who opposes us, no matter how strong and threatening they seem. J.C. Ryle wrote of his confidence in the outcome. Let us remember as we look forward to the days yet to come. We know not what they may be, bright or dark, many or few, but we do know that we are in the hands of Him who does all things well. He will not err in any of His dealings with us. He will take away and give. He will afflict and bereave. He will move and He will settle with perfect wisdom at the right time in the right way. The great shepherd of the sheep makes no mistakes. He leads every lamb of his flock by the right way to the city of habitation. The Lord protects and advances His gospel despite wicked and violent opposition. He will get the victory and we will share in it forever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You and thank You for the fact that You sent Your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise You and thank You, Lord, that Your gospel is continuing to go out all around the world, that even today people repented and trusted in You in many countries all around the globe, even though leaders and governments and groups of people who are in opposition to You tried to stamp out Your Word and Your church, but Your Word will be victorious, and we praise You that we will get to share in it with You. In Christ's name, amen.